Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I support a growing community of top climate and ESG leaders as the Chief Experience Officer at Nations Wealth, and I'm an advisor to the climate practice at IDEO. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and when it comes to climate action, I know I'll be a lifelong learner always looking to have more impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you found us. Sign up for updates and suggest ideas for future episodes at investedinclimate.com. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Thanks for joining. The Great Wealth Transfer is going to be happening over the next 10, 15, 20 years, anywhere from $30 trillion on up that is going to be transitioning from an older generation to a younger generation, a generation that again, 99% of which have an interest in sustainable investing. So making sure that there are products that aren't the less bad versions, but that are the actual solutions-based version is going to be really important. Hi, folks. From the growing demand for climate-positive investing, new funds, new approaches for financial advisors, and entire new platforms for managing one's investments are taking off. And this is just the beginning. It's hard to imagine how different investing might be as tens of trillions of dollars transfer to younger, sustainably motivated generations. Today's conversation is with two people working to change how people invest today to participate in and support the unique opportunity that is the climate transition. Pete Kroll is a partner and the director of sustainable investments at Earth Equity Advisors, a firm he founded almost 20 years ago. Bonnie Gurry is a co-founder and CEO of Green Portfolio a new startup aimed at creating an online financial management platform like Mint.com, but focused on climate-first investing. We talk about their backgrounds, their companies, the trends, opportunities, and evolution they're seeing in climate investing, and much, much more. Lots in this one. Enjoy. Bonnie and Pete, welcome to Invested in Climate. Thank you. We're glad. I'm glad to be here. I'm sure... Yeah, it's great to be here. <laughs> Pete, you're already nice to be here. little fumble already. <laughs> Love it. We're going to keep that. Great to see you both. Where are you dialing in from today? I am in New York City. And I'm in beautiful Asheville, North Carolina. I've heard it's beautiful, never gone to visit. Hopefully you're both having some summer fun and enjoying some summer adventures, despite working as hard as I'm sure you are. Let's get started and just get to know you guys. Who are you? Let's get started and learn a bit about each of your backgrounds. Bonnie, will you please kick us off and just tell us a bit about your background and how you came to found Green Portfolio? So hi, nice to speak with you. I'm Bonnie Gurry. I'm one of the co-founders and CEO of Green Portfolio. We're on a mission to decarbonize $4 trillion in retail financial assets. I have spent most of my career at the intersection of climate and finance, though it's been called a number of things over the years. My original background is actually mechanical engineering. I have an undergraduate and graduate degree in mechanical engineering, but has spent most of my time trying to find ways to encourage the growth, adoption, and proliferation of climate solutions. And personally find the financial lever to be one of the most underutilized and potentially powerful tools we have to fight climate change. 
that's why I've started tackling it. I thought it was really important and that a lot of consumers and regular people were being left out of that conversation. Well, fantastic. As you said, $4 trillion that are at stake here. So really interesting, important. Much more than that, actually. That's just the part that Green Portfolio is attacking, but there's even more potential than that. Can't wait to hear about it. Thanks, Bonnie. Pete, over to you. Tell us a bit about your background. I started in financial services back in 1998 with Merrill Lynch and spent a little bit of time there and realized about five, six years later that I needed to break away, that it wasn't for me working for a big organization like that. And so about that time, I had been spending some time with who would eventually become my wife, Melissa, who's considerably smarter than me with PhDs in microbiology and molecular genetics. But we were talking about sustainability and environment and things like that. And about that same time, I spent some time with Bill McDonough, who wrote Cradle to Cradle. And I sort of put those two things together. And I founded, at the time, what was Crawl and Company in 2004. Over the years, we have sort of evolved. Right now, 2017, we became Earth Equity Advisors. At the end of 2022, we were acquired by Prime Capital Investment Advisors to really expand our sustainable investment offerings. Fantastic. Bill McDonough, also a common friend and one of our first podcast guests, one of our first conversations early last year, and definitely a big thinker and big influence on on mine as well. Let's get deeper into your companies. Pete, tell us a bit about your firm, Earth Equity Advisors, and the problem that you're helping solve. I mean, at the end of the day, we're a financial services firm, just like any other big company trying to help people invest their money, except we're going to do it without owning fossil fuels. We're going to do it by helping people invest in a way that is proactive, looking for solutions for our biggest challenges, which include obviously climate change, resource scarcity, equity, different things like that. So our goal is, I think very much like Bonnie's, to take those investments that are invested traditionally and really transition them over into investing in what we like to call the new economy or where the economy is going. I tend to look at sort of index investing as rearview mirror investing because it's investing where we've been and we want to invest where we're going. And like I said, that's focused on, on climate solutions and resilience and areas that traditional investing at this point is still ignoring. Tell us a bit more. Who are your clients, Pete? Our clients are really twofold. So we work with individuals. We work with individuals who are typically high net worth, who have a passion for the earth, who have a passion for making change. So that's one side of it. But our other clients are other investment advisors who basically contract with us to use the portfolios that we've been running for some of them over a decade. We've got a long track record in terms of putting together portfolios that are focused on sustainability. We'll probably talk a little bit later, I assume, about like the difference between ESG and sustainable investing and stuff like that. But in the meantime, we do all that due diligence and we make it easy for advisors who don't necessarily want to be experts in sustainable investing, but to be able to offer that to their clients who are asking for it and who would like to see that in their portfolios. Fantastic. And from a look at your website, it looks like you have about $150 million in assets under management. What are some of the advantages of working with a firm your size? That's probably closer to $200 million at this point right now. But I think what the advantages of working with a smaller firm like us is 
you know, we really understand the niche that we're focused on. We really understand sustainable investing. As you get to the bigger investment managers, the Black Rocks of the world, you, you find a lot of greenwashing. You find a lot of holdings in portfolios that sort of make you shake your head and say, why is this in there? And for us to really focus and specialize in sustainable investing gives us an advantage, I think, over some of these big firms that are trying to meet a mass market where we're actually trying to meet the individual. Great. And go a little bit deeper, there's been a lot of growth in the ESG and climate positive investing space. And so there's a lot of competition and a lot of others that have similar offerings. What would you say makes your firm unique right now? I think what makes us unique is that we really have been doing this for over 10 years. So again, we started in 2004, so we've been doing it almost 20. Our portfolios have well over 10-year track records. You don't find that very often, a index or benchmark beating portfolio that obviously past performance is an indicative future results, have to say that, but portfolios that have beat their benchmarks over a lifetime in this particular arena over 10 years. So I think that's probably what is an advantage for us going forward. Thanks, Pete. Bonnie, back to you. Let's hear about Green Portfolio, the $4 trillion that you are working to address. And tell us a bit about your platform and product and how it works. So unlike Pete, we are not a asset manager or a trading platform. We don't manage your money. We're more of a, like a mint.com with a climate lens. So we're really addressing what we have seen as a largely underserved part of the market who can't afford a wealth manager, who doesn't have a financial advisor well-versed in these issues. Our goal is really to help you understand what your money is actually up to so you can make an informed choice. What we do is we pull together a variety of different sources of information that would be really difficult for the average person to correlate or aggregate on their own. So this is financial data, climate data, as well as we use a third-party tool to pull in your personal financial data and pull all of those together so you can see in one view what you're invested in from a climate perspective, what your bank is doing. Do you want to find a better bank? Eventually, we're going to be looking at where your mortgage is held. All of the different places you have your money have a climate impact. People don't think about even the simplest thing of when your paycheck goes in the bank, the bank is off doing something with that money, right? It doesn't just sit there waiting for you to pick it up. They're either out investing in fossil fuel projects or potentially in local solar projects, right? Where do you want your money going? What do you want it funding? Our platform presents all of this information in regards to your investments, in regards to your bank accounts, in regards to other financial products you're using, and gives you a pretty high level, easy to understand and digest review almost of your money and the climate impact of the financial choices you've made. Right. And I believe that you're calling that review a climate scorecard that you've developed. And that's part of your efforts around climate first investing. And if I understand correctly, the climate scorecard really looks at business operations, emissions, and future plans of the investments that you're making. Tell us a bit more about the scorecard and what's involved in considering investment opportunity through these criteria. Our goal is really to answer that simple question. Where is your money going after you give it to someone else and what is it doing? So when we're looking at investments, for instance, we started by trying to answer the simplest question in theory that our users were asking. Is my money in a fossil fuel company? Is it out in a coal company? Right? People don't have a good viewpoint of what their money is actually up to, even for these very simple questions. Right? So we're able to pull in from all your different 401ks, 
It doesn't matter if you're in a straightforward stock or a fund of funds, we're able to then go through and roll up across all of your investments and say 8% of your money is in companies involved in fossil fuel exploration or distribution, for instance, or 2% is directly in a coal company, right? People are very surprised to learn that even if they have chosen ESG funds, et cetera, that they likely still have a decent amount of money directly invested in carbon intensive companies. And then further, when we look at a bank, for instance, we look at the loan portfolio of the bank and what are they investing your deposits in? What are they doing with your deposits after you give them to a bank? And we just try to make that really easy to understand. So if you don't like it, you can change it, right? Because right now, that's just not the kind of information that an average consumer can put their fingers on easily. So that's really what we're trying to address, just provide the kind of information a person needs to make an informed decision about their own financial choices. Great. And unlike Pete's company, Green Portfolio hasn't been around for 20 years. You're a startup. Tell us, how is it going and how far along are you? Yeah, we are a startup. So we began actually with a small grant from the NRDC in 2020 and have spent the past couple of years building out our rating system, building out our platform. We're currently rolling out, we're in closed beta of our second version of the platform right now. So we've been pulling in people's financial accounts, rating them for climate impact, et cetera. At the moment, we have around 20 million in assets under assessment. Uh, so we're not managing them. So we have a, a slightly different metric we use. We're really just getting started on our way to that $4 trillion number. But already we're really uncovering, especially for people, and, and it's a little frustrating for them to see, people who have gone to the trouble of putting all of their money in ESG, for instance, for them to have a viewpoint where they can actually see what they put their money into and they don't like it often, I think has been very illuminating for us and for them as well. We're really excited just to kind of continue to add on different kinds of financial products as well. Right now we have investments and bank accounts who are also looking in the future to add on other kinds of financial products for ratings, such as mortgages or credit cards or offsets. And we're about to incorporate hopefully soon some crypto assets, get some ratings on that as well. We just want to give an entire viewpoint for an individual of their financial health from a climate perspective. Fantastic. Thanks, Bonnie. Pete, back to you. Earth Equity Advisors offers something similar to the scorecard that Bonnie described. You're calling it a free impact x-ray of one's investments. Tell us about that offer and how it works. I want to back up just a little bit because I think what Bonnie was really hitting on is important is so many folks look at a fund and they see that it says ESG on it and they make assumptions. And a lot of the big asset managers are nurturing that assumption. They're saying ESG equates to sustainable investing and they're two very different things. So I'd love to just define how we look at that and then I'll get into the, the impact x-ray. But ESG is simply a set of metrics. It's a bunch of numbers related to the environmental, social, or governance risk associated with a company. It's not a portfolio in and of itself. And what we've seen is the easy way out is to take a traditional index, the S&P 500, the Russell 2000, whatever it is, and then layer on some of these metrics that are coming from third parties and then calling it a sustainable portfolio. But at the end of the day, it's not a sustainable portfolio. It's a portfolio that's had some ESG metrics layered on it. What I like to call it is it's a less bad portfolio because ultimately what you've done is you've maybe decreased your ExxonMobil shares or you've decreased gambling or something else that might not fit into what we would call a sustainable portfolio. The way that I like to describe this best is 
an ESG portfolio that reduces its exposure to ExxonMobil is less bad. One that eliminates it entirely is better, but one that actually replaces it with First Solar is sustainable because it's solutions-based. It's focused on a positive impact instead of just making it less bad. And there's a disconnect between retail investors and institutional investors. Retail investors, when they say, I want to have a sustainable portfolio, they want something solutions-based. They don't want to suddenly get their annual or their semi-annual report and be paging through the list of holdings and see Chevron and Exxon and all these companies that are part of the problem. This is really where we need as much education as possible. Exactly what Bonnie is doing is important. When we have prospective clients come in and they ask us to do an impact x-ray, basically what we're doing is we're putting their holdings through a screen and it shows them how much they have in fossil fuel, how much they have in weapons, how much they have in tobacco, et cetera. And then it'll break down into the individual stocks that they hold. And almost every single time that we run one of those reports for a prospect, they actually become a client at that point. Because just like Bonnie said, People aren't aware, for the most part, what's under the hood. What are these portfolios actually holding? The more we can bring this to light, maybe we can push the industry to actually be a little bit more positive and a little bit less, less bad. Just to add to that, when we speak with our users who tend to be a bit less financially savvy, potentially they're just starting in a younger crowd, they're just starting to delve into these topics and their understanding of ESG often is they think they are choosing a portfolio that is having a good effect on the world. They think that's what ESG means. In reality, ESG actually means the complete opposite in many ways. It is a risk mitigation tool about how the world will affect the companies in that portfolio, right? So it's a literal flipped understanding of what ESG is supposed to be doing for them as an investor. And it has resulted in them often buying something that isn't what they want, right? It isn't doing at all what they think it's doing. And all of these different fund managers rely upon the fact that most people don't go to the trouble of reading the annual <laughs> prospectus or going through all the holdings. You can't see the full holdings unless you really click through, right? You only see the top 10 and people think that's okay, good enough. But when you have bought many different funds in different accounts and you add up your overall exposure to many of these companies that you are actively trying to avoid, you actually find that you have been investing for quite some years in a variety of very carbon and climate intensive companies. And we found that it's not just retail investors. When we're working with financial advisors and they don't know anything about sustainable investing and they have a client that comes to them and says, I'd like to invest sustainably, they're going to take the easiest route. What's one of the biggest funds out there? BlackRock, ESG, AWARE, MSCI, whatever the long train of it is. But what happens ultimately is that client will could turn on them because they didn't actually follow their request. They went the easy route because, hey, there's $13 billion in this. They must be doing something right, right? Well, no, they're just really good at marketing. And instead of actually putting together a solutions-based portfolio, they're just making this less bad one. And then that client, again, gets their annual or semi-annual report or just on a whim decides to look and see what the holdings are. And suddenly that advisor is in trouble with their client because that's not what they wanted. That advisor should be in trouble with their client, Pete, in my opinion. Exactly. <laughs> They're getting the paid. They are getting paid 
to read yeah. the prospectus on behalf of their client. <laughs> Specifically, that is their job. So yeah, to me, I don't feel bad that they might get fired for not doing <laughs> the very minimum of meeting their obligations to their client. Absolutely. Sounds like you actually have a similar starting point of really helping investors understand where their money's going, despite their intentions, sometimes there's surprises around what they're actually backing. And then I'm curious what happens next. Pete, you said that the majority of times folks will become a client. How does your process then differ and offer them more sustainable options and options that are more aligned to their values? Because we're not doing the less bad thing, if you will. So when we're putting portfolios together, we really are looking for, here's a positive and solutions-based portfolio. So a client that comes over, obviously, you've got to take a number of things into account, including taxes and what kind of accounts they have. But the process is really quite easy. Once somebody decides to work with us, we go through a risk tolerance questionnaire, we get to know the client and we understand what their needs are, what their goals are. And then we can go and integrate our portfolios into theirs. Sometimes it's just a complete swap one for one. Sometimes you do it over years because of tax implications. But realistically, it's not a difficult process. I was on a panel several years ago and one of the major church groups was having this debate about, do we divest from fossil fuels? Their investment managers were, well, we just can't take and sell all these stocks out. And I was like, why not? You're not in a taxable account. <laughs> You're a nonprofit, basically. You can sell all these out and buy all solutions in less than a week. They had a problem really getting that and really understanding that. And I think that that is this idea that we can't transition quickly when the reality is we can transition pretty quickly if we need to, or if we want to, if we had that desire and that will to do so. Yeah. And Pete, I've heard similar conversations and a response that often comes up is that the traditional energy sector, aka fossil fuels, is such a large part of the economy that it's hard to have a diversified portfolio without including it. What's your response to that? Am I allowed to cuss on here and say that that's BS? No. All right. BS is fine. (laughs) So part of the presentation that I give on a regular basis to advisors and prospective clients and folks, it shows a chart of XLE. XLE is the energy sector spider. And basically it is an aggregation of fossil fuel companies. From 2013 through the end of 2022, so right before 2022 when fossil fuels started to come back up, it had 0% return over that nine-year period. Literally, it had a 0% return over that nine-year period. So anybody who says you need to include everything just doesn't understand the dynamics, A, of how the economy is shifting, but B, looking at these legacy companies like this and understanding that they're a dying breed. I mean, one of the examples I give in my talk is it shows a picture of a rotary phone. None of us use a rotary phone anymore. Some of us don't even know what the hell a rotary phone is. Every single one of us, though, has a computer in our hands that functions in many ways the same way that that rotary phone used to. I don't know of anybody who's actually done bloodletting in the last few years versus like doing an MRI or doing things that are really advanced in terms of medicine, CRISPR and all the great stuff that's happening. But we're holding on to these legacy industries for no reason other than the people who control them also control the politicians. At some point, we need to break away from that and break away from the idea that we have to include every single industry in our portfolios. That's an idea called tracking error. 
That's for institutional investors who have a very specific investment policy that says you will not vary from the index by more than X percent. You can't index the next economy by using the old economy to do so. This idea that we have to maintain these particular percentages, this particular tracking error, doesn't fly going forward. And I think it also is ignoring, especially for the average person, their completely unrecognized climate risk in their financial life. And this is within their investment portfolio. This is with their house. This is looking at a variety of parts of their life that could be impacted by climate change, right? Both positively or negatively. And I think that most people haven't even barely started to consider this aspect of how they may or may not be including different kinds of sectors in their portfolio or in their life in general. And there's just no exposure. There's no understanding for the average person of whether this is a good or bad thing. They're just doing the status quo right? And look where the status quo has gotten us, for one, to make the assumption that you need to have legacy energy firms in your portfolio in order to reach higher returns, to me is not a valid assumption as well. But yet it is baked into every conversation people have because it's just a given, even though the numbers really don't back that up. I have to say that the fossil fuel sector has excellent marketing, especially compared to climate community. We have done a poor job in comparison in showing how important we are to the future of our economy and what an opportunity investing in this matter actually is. Thanks, Bonnie. I really like the point that you raised around climate risk not really being factored into portfolios currently, probably a lot there. And probably we could say the same around climate opportunity, that climate transition is not fully measured into portfolios or investment opportunities. Pete, you were making the point before around indexing against the old economy. And I heard you talk about this as a differentiator for your firm that you benchmark differently. You benchmark companies based upon the economy that can take us forward rather than the economy that has gotten us where we are. Tell us a bit more about what that means and how it really works in practice. Instead of using an index that says you need to have X percent in consumer staples and Y percent in fossil fuels or whatever it is, having done this for 20 years, we're trying to come up with what are the industries and what are the sectors that are going to lead us going forward. So we're not indexing as much as we're predicting. Next economy or new economy investing is what I would call true growth investing, because you are investing in where the economy is going. And I truly believe that you cannot index where we're going by looking in the rearview mirror, which is what we try to do over and over and over again, which means you need to break out of the old paradigms. You need to break out of the idea of tracking error. You need to break out of the idea that we have to have fossil fuel in every single portfolio. It just doesn't work that way if you're going forward. Again, it's like I said, if you were going to own the old version of AT&T, where it was a completely analog system, you wouldn't own that anymore because that just doesn't exist anymore. Everybody uses like the buggy whip example. They didn't realize that they were going out of business until suddenly there were automobiles and you didn't need a buggy whip anymore, right? It's the same thing. We need to start that transition. And the way indexing works is they may rebalance those portfolios once a year, they may take out legacy industries, but it's not really what their job is. They're trying to maintain you know, 500 stocks or whatever it is that are an indicator of where the economy is now, but not necessarily of where the economy is tomorrow. Thanks, Pete. Really helpful. 
Bonnie, I'd love to come back to you and go back to that point of after your users do the exercise of going through a climate scorecard and understanding what their investments are actually backing, what happens next? I see that the Green Portfolio website offers a range of product recommendations across different categories, including green banks, green robo-advisors, funds. Break this down for us a bit and help us understand what these different opportunities are at a high level and really what is it that Green Portfolio allows your users to do after they do that audit of their investments? Right. That's really kind of the beginning of their journey. This is their starting point, understanding what their money is actively doing, right? Thus far, many people have been kind of passive money managers, but we want to encourage them to start taking a more active role. So that means going through their scorecards, seeing who the worst offenders are, and trying to make a change, right? Like looking at what you're invested in and seeing if there is a comparable product that will meet your risk expectations, but then allow you to divest from carbon intensive industries. And similarly, for your bank, we actually find that switching your bank is often the first step that our users will take. They find out we're like, oh, you're in Chase Bank, you might want to reconsider, it's very easy to open a new account and see your money starting to make a positive difference, right? And so switching from Chase to Amalgamated or Clean Energy Credit Union, I would love to get to the point where people are embarrassed to use their Chase credit card at dinner because it means they are actively supporting one of the worst players in the finance industry when it comes to climate change, right? So encouraging them to start making small changes that are really powerful, all right, when taken at the aggregate. And then look at other kinds of financial products that have a positive climate impact. So we're also rolling out these sustainable partners, helping you find an EV loan or a way to finance electrification of your home, or hopefully eventually finding a new credit card that has real green benefits to it. We're still waiting. We've been at this now for almost two years and have not found a credit card that we are willing to recommend. Most don't actually do anything better than maybe, maybe plant a tree, which is not always as positive a climate activity as people assume it to be. We really want people to kind of take a holistic view of what all the things their money could be doing. These are actions you can take that are vastly more impactful than not using a plastic straw. They don't require changing your entire lifestyle, right? It's about actively managing for positive climate impact. And that's something that really resonates with our users, especially because the switching cost is so low at this point in time, right? There's kind of no excuse once you realize what your money is up to, to try to find better products. Thanks, Bonnie. I noticed that as well, is that you have recommendations for several types of products for green banks, robo-advisors, and funds on your website. But when I clicked on the credit card, clear, no cards yet satisfied your criteria. Tell us a bit more, what are you hoping to see from a credit card that would make it worth recommending? Well, first, I would like a credit card that's at least honest about what it's doing. Thus far, I think in in the space, we've seen some of the biggest players actively be deceitful, honestly, about the climate impact of their cards, whether that's saying that it's made out of wood, that doesn't do anything. If anything, maybe it's worse. I don't know. We didn't truly put the time in to see the environmental difference between a wooden versus a plastic card. It seemed pretty inconsequential to us. But then there are other ones that claim, you know, the plant trees every time you swipe. But then if you dig into it, well, one, we don't recommend planting trees in general as a means of offsetting your climate impact has to be done very carefully and correctly and even still does not have a very long effect, right? Because 
trees don't last forever. But then even when you start digging into some of the biggest players claiming to plant trees, you find they did not actually plant the trees they said they were going to plant. And then have a bigger problem in the space if you look at all of the tree planting that has been promised by every company claiming to be carbon neutral, et cetera, et cetera. We will need to plant more trees than there is land on earth, right? So this is not a solution. And we would love to see, you know, a credit card that purchases quality carbon removal offsets or actually funds investments. We think it'd be do a roll up and have it go into a PV project near you, something like that we think would be really powerful and engaging. But we haven't really seen that on the market yet. We're we're still hoping that we'll see one soon. Is it an opportunity that Green Portfolio is looking into for your company? We have dug into it, honestly. Credit cards are a bit of a tricky business. You have to really understand the risk profile of all of your customers, et cetera. Maybe someday if we found the right partner that could kind of do the other half of the, the equation for us. But at the moment, we're still kind of watching the market to see who comes out with something that we would love to recommend to our users who are eager for these kinds of products. That's the thing also, like people want it. They ask us, we get emailed all the time and we would love to have something we could recommend. Great. Thanks, Bonnie. Let's talk about investing in renewable energy. Most people listening to this podcast probably recognize that we're building a future that'll be powered by renewables and that they might want to find ways to invest in that megatrend. What are some ways that everyday investors can actually invest in renewables? Pete, I know this is something that you've explored and you work with your clients on. Mm -hmm. Give us a sense of what are some options. I think there's a couple of ways to do it. I mean, the first way, obviously, is putting panels on your own house, which I've done. There are banks like Climate First Bank. I don't know, Bonnie, if they're on your radar. That's one of their main issues is funding solar on houses. And we rate them very highly. Yes. They do great work. I'm friends with the CEO, so I wanted to make sure that we called them out. That's number one, is actually doing it yourself. Number two, if you're a smaller investor who wants to be in clean energy, looking at, say, an ETF or a mutual fund that focuses specifically on it, but this is still one of those cases where you still have to look under the hood. Even though it may say that it's clean energy, you might find something in there like companies that are using wood pellets that we don't really consider to be sustainable at all. I can't really give a recommendation on here, but we use an ETF in all of our fund portfolios that is really handpicked, that's really focused on, okay, what are the different companies that are in this portfolio? And we want to see something that's global. We don't want to be just US-centric because obviously we need to grow this worldwide. We want something that is focused on not just solar, but also wind, also batteries, also geothermal, just a really broad range of different solutions. Like you said, we've got one that we really like using because of the holdings that it's got. And it's performed well. It's interesting. When you look back, I was talking earlier about XLE and the return percentage over that extended out to a 10-year period from 2013 through the beginning of 2023, this particular fund performed 320% better than fossil fuels did over that same time period. Even though fossil fuels came up in 2022 and clean energy went down in 2022, it still outperformed by 320%. So there's huge opportunity there. And Bloomberg New Energy Finance said that there was about a trillion dollars invested in the energy transition in 2022. But they say that that needs to triple to over four and a half trillion by the end of the decade. There is going to be huge opportunity there. And there's also been a real 
change for the retail investor, right, in crowd investing in this space as well, which I think should be called out. It is much easier. It has changed. The laws changed recently. It is much easier now for an average individual to invest directly into projects that yield a return, right? This is not a charity through platforms like Race Green or Renewables.org, where you can pick a project that they have sourced through a very reputable partner to loan your money to help finance that project at a very fair rate for everyone. So I think that also is something that should be considered as an option for individuals as well. Fantastic. Thanks, Bonnie. And we did an episode with Raise Green a couple months ago, so they're for folks to listen to as well. I'd love to get to both looking at the future as well as the politicized backlash. Let's start with the future. I'd love to talk about how the investment landscape has been changing and what you see as coming next. We often hear about a massive transfer of wealth between generations and also with the growing role of women as investors helping drive more interest in sustainable investing. Pete, you've been in this space for many years. I'm curious to hear what you've been seeing in terms of recent change and how you see it evolving in the future. There's two areas there to really break down. So the first is opportunities to invest. I like to say back in 2012, when I started our Green Sage sustainability portfolio, I did not have an individual battery company that I could put into the portfolio. They simply didn't exist at that point. And now we've gotten to the point where I have to choose which one or which ones we're actually going to put into the portfolio because that industry has really grown and it's going to continue to grow tremendously. There was $73 billion in 2022 invested in battery manufacturing plants in the U.S. So that's huge opportunity. We're going to continue to see new developments take place because obviously nobody likes to see what's going on with mining nickel and lithium and some of these other things. So we're going to see continued improvement in battery technology and clean energy technology that is going to be less impactful on people and planet going forward. So that's an area in terms of the future. Morgan Stanley does a report about every two years And the last one said that 99% of millennials were either very interested or somewhat interested in sustainable investing. The great wealth transfer is going to be happening over the next 10, 15, 20 years, anywhere from $30 trillion on up that is going to be transitioning from an older generation to a younger generation, a generation that, again, 99% of which have an interest in sustainable investing. So making sure that there are products that aren't the less bad versions, but that are the actual solutions-based version is going to be really important going forward. Making sure if you're a financial advisor that you actually educate yourself and that you're starting to make a connection with that next generation. Because Ernst & Young says 70 to 80% of those clients where there's a generational handoff in assets will go to a different advisor. And they're going to go to a different advisor because the advisor of the parents or grandparents where the money is coming from doesn't necessarily identify with that next generation. There's a lot of opportunity in terms of how we communicate this, how we educate ourselves about this and where we're going. I'm sure, Bonnie, you've got some more to add to that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it should be viewed as an opportunity. What my generation and also Gen Z is really looking for is seriously not being offered right now on the market. You have to go out and scrounge around and find a good solution, find good options. And when we talk to the powers that be that are currently managing our financial system and financial assets at a higher level, at this moment, they're somewhat dismissive, honestly, of younger generations not only desire, but impetus to do this. This is super important to us. We would like 
to have a similar world to what they grew up in, which is safe, stable, and has a sustainable environment. And to us, it's not unreasonable that we would also want our money to be funding that future. However, when you go and you try to access the current product offerings, once again, you go back into that mode of like, well, you have to be invested in these kind of legacy industries. Otherwise, you're not going to get good returns and risk and this and that. And to us, it's so much more existential than that. And I think it's really not being addressed how important this is to our generation, who are, by the way, not children. I also think that's something that for some reason, millennials are grouped as like immature, idealistic. We are like 40 with mortgages and kids. We are grownups with money who have the right to have it managed in a way that matches what we want from both our values and a risk point of view. So hopefully we will continue to see that change going forward because it has to. Bonnie, not only are those interests not being addressed, I'd argue that they're being objected to very actively. So, of course, I'm bringing up the politicization of ESG and the backlash to ESG, and really the outcry of conservative voices pushing back against even the idea that companies have environmental and social responsibilities and that investors should care about this side of their performance. It's created a noisy environment. I'm curious, what do you both think is really happening And what does it mean for sustainable investing? I think this is another way that carbon intensive industries are trying to protect themselves, right? They're trying to keep a hold on the status quo, frankly. They have been in all of these massive funds managed by different managers at the state or corporate level for so many years. They don't want to be dropped off indexes. They don't want to be left out of the conversation. They want to continue to have this kind of protected status in our society. To me, that's where this is coming from. And it's a very clever way of approaching the problem because it kind of distracts from who the actual bad player is and it allows them to kind of still protect themselves. But this is not something that the average person is talking about that much, to be perfectly frank. Something we all are talking about, but the average person just really cares about their money and their returns. This has been my experience. Pete, what's your take and what do you think it means for the long term of sustainable investing? Well, my take is that the ESG debate is a way for politicians to divide us. I think it's a way for politicians to talk to their base, to pander to their base. And at the end of the day, that's about it. There was the ESG month, I think, last month in the House, and nothing actually came out of that. At the end of the day, as a fiduciary, we're charged with knowing as much as we can about any investment that we propose or invest in for a client. I don't understand how people don't get that knowing more about an environmental risk, social risk, or governance risk isn't just simply more data that we can make better decisions with. The state of Utah got a negative rating from their environment for their municipal bonds, and the politicians were all up in arms saying this is not material, et cetera, et cetera. But BYU came out with a study that said the Great Salt Lake is down 73% from where it was. It could be dry in five years. It provides $2.5 billion in annual economic activity. It provides lake effect snow up onto the slopes, which provide another billion and a half dollars in economic activity. And it stops toxic dust, which is what you get when you've got salt water 
from blowing into Salt Lake City, which has got 3.3 million people. So you can't tell me that an environmental factor isn't a material factor when you look at an example such as that. Anybody who is trying to politicize this is just simply trying to politicize this for their own purposes. Pete, Bonnie, thank you so much for your comments today, for the work that you're doing, and for being here. Thanks so much, Jason. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again. 